This is a WKYT podcast. Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers. Hope you're enjoying your weekend. If you ask any Kentuckian where they're from and they grew up in the Commonwealth, the chance is very good that they'll tell you the county they're from. Later, the head of the Kentucky Association of Counties on the challenges that local governments are feeling right now. Jim Henderson from Keiko will join us shortly. But first, Kentucky schools are planning to reopen in the fall and everybody knows it will be a tough challenge in the era of COVID-19. Schools quickly shifted to online learning in the spring and most are prepared to make that move again if the virus dictates it. What concerns do teachers and staff members have as the new school year approaches in the middle of a pandemic with the numbers climbing again? Eddie Campbell is president of the Kentucky Education Association. The KEA represents some 44,000 members, including aspiring and retired educators. During his tenure as president, Mr. Campbell is on loan from the Knox County School District. President Campbell, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it very much. Well, thanks for having us today. You know, we are just weeks away now from when schools plan to open their doors and have students uh, in class and in the hallways. Uh, what are you hearing right now from uh, teachers and your members as uh, they gear up for school to start for the first time since March? Uh, I think there's a lot of concern um, uh, around health and safety to ensure that our, our students are safe, that the adults that are gonna be in the building that service those kids every day, uh, making sure that their health and safety uh, uh, is uh, being uh, taken care of. Uh, our, you know, our schools are the heart and souls of our communities. It's a gathering place. So we have people that will be coming in, the students will be gathering there, the adults will be coming in there. So just really focusing on that health and safety and ensuring that we can, uh, 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 you know, protect our students and our staff uh, uh, through this pandemic. Does this put a lot of additional responsibility on the teachers and, and school personnel uh, as they try to enforce a, a lot of uh, new rules and, uh, you know, and, and continue to, uh, to instruct their students? Uh, yes, I think it puts a lot of weight on our educators' shoulders. Uh, you know, they spend many hours uh, planning and creating materials, grading, assessing, doing feedback already, and then parent conferences, student conferences, uh, monitoring halls and uh, loading of buses and uh, parent pickups. I mean, it's a very complex system. You know, uh, a, a school is a very vibrant and, and busy place, but this is going to add uh, lots of other things like temperature checks and monitoring to make sure that social distancing uh, is uh, being adhered to. Um, being able to maybe giving up your uh, planning time to cover classes if there's no subs that's going to be available, um, maintaining logs, helping with uh, contract tracing, um, even uh, down to sanitizing desks between classes. So I think it's there's going to be a big responsibility not only for the teachers uh, and our aides that are in the classrooms, but for uh, our bus drivers, our uh, uh, our food service, our, our secretaries, our administrators. Uh, you know, there's going to be a, a, a real big weight that's going to be put on their shoulders just to ensure that health and safety. As we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the, the 
teachers obviously have to be prepared to very quickly move from classroom instruction to online instruction, but it appears some of that uh, will be going on simultaneously in that if parents uh, do not choose uh, to send their uh, children to school, uh, that is going to be acceptable by most districts and uh, they will have an online option. Will teachers be teaching both in class and online? Uh, I, you know, well, it's going to look different in every single school district, and it's even going to look every, different in every single school building. Um, our educators uh, across the state are the most um, well-educated workforce in the Commonwealth. They are experts in teaching and learning. They've proven themselves uh, in the spring when they, on, on a dime, flipped to doing distance learning and meal delivery and, and, and providing all those supports that students needed through a distance learning model. But, you know, some, you know, it, again, it's gonna look different in every single school district. So it's very important that the, the educators, the bus drivers, the custodial workers, uh, the aides, the teachers are the ones that are helping to create these plans and, and set out a path to ensure that you know, uh, a high quality education will continue no matter what the circumstances is. Uh, is. Has there been much discussion uh, that, that you're party to uh, about uh, what happens if students are not compliant with uh, some of these rules? For instance, uh, uh, wearing a mask when they're in the hallway or uh, in a classroom if that's required by the local district. Uh, you know, the, the mask has become a very politi uh, politicized issue. Uh, but again, uh, th these decisions will be made uh, district to district uh, and uh, building to building. So it will be important that the educators have, the, have a voice in what that looks like and what those po policies look like. But more importantly, you know, it's going to take parent involvement, it's going to take administrators, it's going to take the educators, and it's going to take our communities and our community leaders talking about the safety uh, uh, issues around the mask and making sure we use a mask uh, for safety issues. It's not only to protect me uh, as an individual, but to protect all my friends that are around me. Mr. Campbell, the uh, state budget is uh, pretty much busted. We know that. The governor's office estimates a $1.1 billion shortfall. Of course, they're trying to get uh, federal assistance, and uh, we'll see if uh, Congress uh, makes any action on that. Does that concern you, though, for, for schools and employees? Uh, it's a great concern. You know, there were equities before, uh, inequities before the pandemic occurred. You know, uh, opportunity gaps, access, uh, and uh, to technology and internet connections, uh, basic materials, you know, those, those inequities existed before the pandemic even began. And now we're adding uh, other things like making sure that we have uh, personal protective equipment, um, that, you know, there's a supply of, of masks for if a student forgets those, making sure that we have sanitation uh, equipment um, and products to make sure that we're cleaning our schools to keep them safe. So that's another burden that's being laid on the shoulders of our school districts all across the Commonwealth. And I know that the, the CARES Act um, provided some funding uh, that's gonna be coming down to school districts, but our school districts, as you said, are, are going to be strapped because a lot of those income, when the income comes in from the state or even from the local tax base, you know, that's gonna be severely curbed because of the economic crisis that we're in. So 
the HEROES Act that was passed by the House of Representatives provided uh, like $175 billion that would go directly to school uh, districts to help kind of fill that gap in. And we know now more than ever, it's going to be important that we have those that extra funding to cover all these other expenses that are going to be uh, coming down the pike. Yeah, it's important to attract uh, good people into education and, and have those uh, strong teachers out there. Is it becoming more difficult, and when you have a circumstance like this, is it more difficult to uh, get young people to choose careers in education and teaching? Uh, you know, we had, there were issues before uh, with uh, getting people to come into the profession. You know, educate, uh, public education or teaching uh, and education jobs are hard. You know, uh, it, it's not, um, it's not an easy career, but it's a career from the heart and making sure that we're educating our next generation. You know, our schools are our foundation of our society. You know, education is the foundation of our society and ensuring that we have a strong public education uh, for our students and that we have highly qualified uh, and motivated individuals that are coming into that field uh, is going to be uh, very important, not only now, but even moving forward. A new education commissioner was being named uh, uh, on Friday heading into the weekend. Uh, you know, that is a, a very important and key role. Uh, how closely do you uh, look forward to working with the, the new commissioner? Oh, I'm, I'm looking, uh, uh, I, I'm looking, I can't wait to, to meet uh, whoever, whoever is being chosen because uh, at this time I don't know. But, um, you know, I, we have a board of education who has uh, many, many years of experience. We have uh, teachers of the year, we have nationally board certified teachers who sit on that board or retire, uh, former teachers uh, who know what teaching and learning looks like, who know what classroom experience is, uh, who know how schools function. And I'm sure that they have, uh, uh, the, the person that has been chosen uh, will be leading our state into the next phase of uh, public education here in the state of Kentucky. And I can't wait uh, to partner with uh, him or her to make sure that we're moving in the right direction. You know, there's always a little politics uh, in every discussion. Uh, uh, high school uh, teacher uh, Travis Brenda uh, was elected to the state house as a Republican who promised to back teachers in 2018. Then he lost his seat in last month's primary by 30 votes. Does that signal in any way that uh, educators are less mobilized uh, than they were when they fought uh, uh, the pension battles and played a major role in the defeat of the incumbent governor last year? Uh, or do you think this was based on local issues? Uh, you know, I can't speak to how people voted in, in that district directly, but what I can speak to is that our educators are just as mobilized and engaged in ensuring that their students that their profession uh, and that their public schools have the best opportunities possible. You know, we have to have highly funded schools or fully funded schools. We have to have highly skilled educators that are working with our students. And uh, I know moving uh, down the road that they're going to be just as engaged as they were in uh, previous elections. Kentucky passed a one-year budget in this uh, emergency situation, and, uh, and of course, lawmakers then went home. They're expecting to come back in January for uh, another session. Do you have goals for the legislature uh, in that upcoming session? Uh, you know, our goals don't change uh, a lot around public education. You know, ensuring that we have fully funded classrooms 
that we have fully funded public schools, ensuring that there's uh, funding that's going to be that's going to help to close those opportunity gaps uh, is going to always be a focus because we want to make sure that we're providing our students in the Commonwealth and the next generation with the highest quality public education possible. We also want to make sure that our educators, those that are coming into this uh, uh, into the system. Uh, as new educators or our educators that are in the system now uh, have the benefits and the security that they need because they're public servants. They're serving our community every single day. So we need to make sure that we're taking care of them also in that process. Eddie Campbell, president of the Kentucky Education Association. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate it very much. Thank you so much. And stay with us on Kentucky Newsmakers. And Jim Henderson will join us from the Kentucky Association of Counties as local governments are up against it as well in this situation. We'll be back on Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. We're glad you're with us. If you ask a Kentuckian where they're from and they grew up somewhere in the Commonwealth, they'll usually proudly name their county. Kentucky has 120 counties, including two merged governments in Lexington and Louisville. But these are very tough times for local governments. Budgets are busted in many cases. Uh, there is not enough that state government can do to help them either because of uh, the trouble there. So the Kentucky Association of Counties represents the counties in Frankfort and Washington, and leaders are speaking out right now loudly about the needs in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Counties, of course, fund jails and libraries, sheriff's departments, animal shelters, roads, parks, and more. The executive director of CACO is Jim Henderson, who is joining us to talk about the challenges facing the counties. We thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for asking me on, Bill. Good morning. The state faces uh, right now, according to the governor, about a $1.1 billion shortfall. Uh, that's, you know, in Frankfurt. And so local governments are also uh, dealing with diminished uh, revenue and increased demands. Uh, what are they telling you about how they're handling things right now? Bill, most of our counties are um, in some uh, unusually uh, challenging times with regard to their finances. And the truth is that that existed before COVID-19. And as I've said many times during this last four months, really these challenges with COVID have only added to the financial challenges many of our counties face. And so um, again, with, with what was already facing them, uh, this challenge uh, has uh, taxed the, their resources in many ways. It's affected what they've had to spend to uh, take care of their communities, but also it's really affected their revenue streams in many cases where businesses were shut down and uh, industry unable to be at full capacity in many of the communities that rely on manufacturing jobs. So it's, uh, it's a pretty tough time for counties right now. And you're a former longtime judge executive yourself. Uh, how do local leaders prioritize their money when, when it goes down? You know, when all of a sudden uh, there isn't enough to, to, to pay the bills or certainly to uh, do the things that uh, county government would like to do? Well, I think uh, some of them simply uh, have to make decisions about things that most of us would think aren't really even options. Um, for counties. Uh, we have a lot of mandates at the county level. Uh, the counties are really a political subdivision of the state and so many of the uh, functional responsibilities of counties are really not negotiable. They're not, we, don't, we don't really get to decide whether or not we run a jail. Uh, we don't really get to decide whether or not we uh, fund uh, our sheriff's office and the operations there. Uh, those are all things that we have to do. So once those dollars 
reach a level that you're, you're only you only have enough money to do the very uh, mandated responsibilities and and the revenue falls below that it's it's just not easy uh, uh, prioritizing what dollars you have uh, sometimes involves uh, really running at at levels that are below a standard you would hope with regard to uh, staffing levels uh, in law enforcement for example uh, many of our counties do struggle to even have uh, deputy sheriffs uh, on on uh, third shift second shift uh, to cover the rural areas of the county and so it, it's a uh, it's not easy it's almost uh, impossible for some of our counties right now to make those decisions do counties intend to ask Washington for additional help? I know there is some money coming uh, from the CARES Act and the, that uh, is uh, uh, being uh, allowed to be spent in, in some flexible ways in many cases, uh, but it's obvious that those budget shortfalls are, are going to be uh, profound. Uh, they are, Bill, and we are grateful that, that the um, uh, Senate uh, leadership, uh, we're fortunate to have uh, someone like Leader McConnell in a role to make things happen in Washington, and they were able to get that CARES Act uh, passed, which did pass money to the states and ultimately to the locals, and I appreciate how Governor Bashir worked with us and the League of Cities to get a portion of that money to counties and cities, and we did get about $300 million of that CARES Act allocated by the governor to counties and cities, which will help. But as you asked about more federal assistance, those dollars with the CARES Act are pretty limited to being used for actual expenses related to the COVID-19 pandemic and, and in, in addressing that issue. It doesn't really backfill the shortfall in county budgets um, for lost revenue. And so we work, and you probably know that uh, our CACO president, Judge Gary Moore from Boone County, uh, is also uh, soon to be the president of the National Association of Counties. And so we've been working with NACO, our partner at the national level, to advocate for additional federal uh, funding to directly to county governments, uh, city governments, um, for lost revenue. Mm -hmm. Now, again, with a large, large deficit already on the federal budget, it's hard, and I understand that, uh, to want to add to that. And so possibly uh, we could hope for some modification of the CARES Act even if future uh, federal legislation is uh, taken up that would allow some of the CARES Act money to actually be used for lost revenue. I think that would certainly be a nice uh, plan B if there aren't any additional dollars allocated to local governments. Yeah. You know, we have a lot of uh, counties that are announcing some of the things that they're having to do, some of the cutbacks they're having to make, uh, and uh, in some cases it's independent boards, but uh, in Fayette County, uh, they're laying off half of the uh, the library staff, uh, most of those part-time workers, uh, so that and uh, having to uh, uh, make some uh, potential uh, cutbacks there. Uh, we, we have other things. Of course, the health departments have this additional responsibility in this situation. And the jails already had huge challenges with the opioid crisis uh, in Kentucky uh, in, in trying to deal with that. So many are simply sent to jail as we try to uh, address that uh, that issue going forward. Uh, do you see us emerging from this in a, a tougher situation than we went into it? Well, I think there are some uh, situations where it may seem impossible to to rebound. And that, that again, is likely to be in places where it was already very, very difficult for a county 
uh, to manage within the budget constraints that they have. I do think that, uh, and I have personally used this approach in many ways with what we do at CACO, and I think many of our county leaders are as well, is this does give us an opportunity to take a hard look at things that we do, and we may we may learn some things from this experience. And, and so uh, there may be things that we, that, that we are able to do differently, uh, maybe more effectively. And some counties I know are already uh, doing that and looking for efficiencies. So again, um, it, it's, it's easier to make these kind of decisions on changes in a tough environment yeah. where you have options. There's things that you even, you don't want to do away with funding your public park. You don't wanna do away with your community arts programs uh, but for counties, those are options that we, in many cases, already had not been able to fund. And so you, you can't not yeah. do certain things. Let me ask can. you a couple of things I would have asked if we weren't in the middle of a, of a pandemic right now. Yeah. How challenging is it for counties to deal with the urban sprawl? You know, where businesses go up on the outskirts of cities and the unincorporated area and then elaborate subdivisions are built uh, with very expensive homes uh, out in areas and then people expect urban-like services uh, that may be miles away uh, from the city or town. That is so true, Bill, and I, I, as I was, when I was county judge, uh, we faced that uh, a lot. And, and, you know, most county governments really aren't, uh, especially smaller counties. Uh, and when I say smaller, I mean smaller counties that see this urban growth. My county, uh, Simpson County, was about 18, is about 18,000, but just below Bowling Green saw a lot of growth um, and so we, we saw even in the small county that happen. And you're right, people would ask for things that really county governments by and large are not set up to do. Many counties don't have uh, sanitary sewer in the rural areas. We don't necessarily provide uh, recycling at the curbside or sidewalks and curb and guttering and street lights. That's not the kind of things that county governments uh, often do. And it's not because they don't want to, it's just simply so far down on the list of things that you might want to do when you're having to fund basic county services. So those demands on counties uh, are great. And so it, it, it does present a struggle in many counties uh, to be able to meet those needs. Um, I, I had people that would move to our area from large urban areas and, and buy a little piece of heaven out in the county. And, and then they expected a fire hydrant and a sidewalk right. and daily patrol by sheriff's offices and street lights. And those are just not realities uh, outside your urban areas in most counties. We have 120 counties. Uh, <laughs> how many times are you asked, is that too many? Uh, all of us knowing who've uh, lived our lives in Kentucky that those, uh, those counties and those uh, names are, are held close to the heart. I'm asked a lot. Um, I was asked a lot before I was in this role. Um, and it's, uh, it's like kryptonite for county, uh, for somebody who works for a county association to touch that. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, I, I've actually been surprised by many county officials across the state who, who've asked the question as well. Uh, you know, it's hard. I mean, I, I think it's really hard because we all identify ourselves mm -hmm. by our community. And so I don't really think there are m many people who are, uh, willing to tackle the idea of changing the number of counties or county boundaries. But I do think that many county leaders out there in the state um, are looking at ways to do things where we merge services, where yeah. we work either with our cities or counties and counties work right, together right. to find a more efficient way 
to deliver, and we're going to be forced to do that. Discussion for another time, and we'll do that at some point. I would appreciate you uh, very much, uh, Jim, for being with us today on Kentucky Newsmakers. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And stay with us. We'll have some campaign 2020 coverage from Greta Van Susteren in a moment. Back on Kentucky Newsmakers, new case numbers are rising for coronavirus in more than 30 states. Florida, a hot spot, and next month, it's slated to host the Republican National Convention. Our national political analyst, Greta Van Susteren, talked about that with President Trump. Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here is your full court fast break. The GOP scrambling to organize the Republican National Convention, but the coronavirus pandemic may upend their plans again. The August event is set to take place in Jacksonville, Florida, but now cases there are rising fast and steeply. Numbers could soar even more if thousands of convention attendees descend upon the city. Event organizers say they will test attendees daily, but so far they are not saying how they would do it. The FDA warns it's too early to tell if Florida will be safe to hold this convention. At least three GOP senators are already announcing they will not go. Still, President Trump wants a full-fledged convention. It's unclear if he will get it. Florida has a 50% capacity mandate on indoor gatherings. Governor Ron DeSantis has not said if he will lift it or even expand it in time. So President Trump may have to accept his party's nomination in a half-empty arena. Interestingly enough, the convention canceled its original host city because North Carolina's governor would not guarantee full use of the Spectrum Center where the convention was to be held. I went to the White House and asked President Trump where he stands now on a possibly smaller convention. Well, we're always looking at different things. When we signed in Jacksonville, and again, uh, we wanted to be in North Carolina. That almost worked out, but the governor didn't want to have people use the arena, essentially. And we sort of, that's a too bad, too bad for North Carolina. And then we went to Florida, and when we went, when we signed a few weeks ago, uh, it looked good, and now all of a sudden it's spiking up a little bit, and that's going to go down. So it really depends on the timing. Look, we're very flexible. We can do a lot of things, but we're very flexible. You can catch our full interview with President Trump this Sunday on Full Court Press. We bring politics home, covering the national stories that impact you. And Full Court Press with Greta will be airing this morning at 11.30 on WKYT. That's Kentucky Newsmakers. We want to thank you for joining us. We'll see you bright and early this week on WKYT this morning. You make it a good week ahead.